Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday morning, October the 16th, 2023. Brand new week, but no great surprises about the headlines this morning. Uh, every major newspaper and news platform is leading with the same story on what the situation in Israel, Gaza Strip, uh, CNN uh, announces as we go to air that Israel is planning a new phase of the war. New York Times talks about the Gaza border remaining closed for aid at this point. No doubt it will open at some point. BBC leading with the 199 hostages in Gaza. Uh, Washington Post uh, leading with the standoff at the Egyptian border. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal um, also covers uh, U.S.'s involvement in pushing for the Gaza border to be reopened, although apparently that has stumbled. So all too familiar. Uh, ooh. The new disorder or perhaps the old disorder? One woman who all too familiar with disorder is my guest today. Alexandra Hall Hall is the co-host of, co of the excellent Disorder podcast. Her, host, uh, her co-host is Jason Pack, who's been on the show a few times. And uh, Alex is joining us from Washington, D.C., where she lives. Um, Alex, it's clearly disordered the world this morning but is it in any way different from previous disorders seems to me as if uh, Hamas has done something dreadful provoked the Israelis and we get into this cycle of dreadful behavior what's different if anything about the situation in Israel Gaza in October 2023 from any other crisis over the last few years thank you I think it's very different, not just in scale, but in the sense that we are, this is encapsulating a phase we are going through and we are seeing it play out in Ukraine as well of a values, an ideological struggle over values again, and essentially autocracy versus democracy. It is a kind of new ideological battle. It is absolutely no surprise to me that those who are most vocal in taking Hamas's side and may have facilitated the attack or supported it, rogue actors like Iran and Russia that has just tabled a resolution in the Security Council without even mentioning the Hamas attack, and then those countries that are coming out very firmly in support and sympathy for what Israel went through without turning a blind eye to the situation of the Palestinians in Gaza, which is truly horrific. But they are saying there is a fundamental issue here, which is Israel has a right to exist and they have a right to defend themselves. And then in Ukraine, same sort of thing. Uh, the Western position is that Ukraine has the right to choose its associations. And if it chooses to apply for NATO, NATO has the right to continue that conversation. And Russia is trying to deny Ukraine's right to act as a sovereign nation. So this is a really, this is a sort of 
fault line that is now emerging across the world and where countries stand on this will show where they stand on this ideological and values battle. You sound like, in some ways, though, just it's another version of the Cold War, the idea of democracy versus the rest. I mean, firstly, there are lots of democracies and people living in democracies who are much more sympathetic to the Palestinians, if not to Hamas. Is there that much difference between your argument about democracy versus authoritarianism and the arguments of traditional Cold War warriors in the 50s and 60s and 70s? Well, as in the Cold War, it was rarely black and white. Um, the US aligned itself with some really difficult and unpleasant regimes in its um, effort to shore up the Western alliance against the spread of communist ideology. And they made for some very uncomfortable bedfellows. And Israel is also a very difficult bedfellow because there is a history to this conflict. And there are legitimate reasons why Palestinians are resentful. It doesn't justify the absolutely heinous crimes of Hamas. And one of the dangers of talking about this, and I was anxious coming on here, how do you even talk about this topic without being accused of false moral equivalence or whataboutery? And everyone is, I think, for understandable reasons, asking Israel to act with restraint and proportionately. But what is the proportionate response to an atrocity of the scale they experienced last week? It is clear that they cannot be safe with Hamas living on their border in Gaza. So this is a diplomatic minefield. The Cold War meant we had some strange bedfellows and we all have had to reflect on that. And the same may also be true now. But yes, in some ways there are echoes of the Cold War in that we are seeing an ideological struggle play out between ordering powers and disordering powers and their proxies. Uh, I'm not a, a Freudian analyst, uh, Alex, but all this talk of difficult bedfellows, what do you mean by that? Well, in the Cold War, the US had relationships with the Pinochet regime in Chile. Margaret Thatcher was very reluctant to disassociate herself from the apartheid regime in South Africa. Um, American actions in Central America to resist communist or leftist organizations meant they allied themselves with some really unpleasant right-wing militias instead. So what's changed uh, in the past? As you noted, uh, the West partnered, had quote-unquote bedfellows like Pinochet in, in Chile. Now they have Netanyahu in Israel. What's the difference? Well, there's a whole host of different things going on. During the Cold War, there was, even if it wasn't a very persuasive or convincing ideology, the, the Soviet Union had a communist ideology. There was a sort of structuring framework. What the disorderers of the world have today, and they exist in the West as well as um, in, in the sort of more traditional authoritarian states, is they're not actually interested in promoting any alternative form of coherent world order. They're just interested in holding on to power themselves and undermining the Western-led order and the US role in the world. 
So they can throw marbles, they can sow dissent, they can plant disinformation, they can exploit fissures. So that's one problem, is that they have no constructive agenda whatsoever. Well, the other, jump in uh, here. No, no, what? I want to finish the point. The other issue is that on our side, we are internally divided and distracted, and there are the siren lure of populism within our own societies as well. So we are creating fertile ground for that disinformation and that disorder to weaken us from within. Well, let me come back to the, the second point later. But in terms of this first point, the idea of the disorder is just being interested in disorder. And again, I'm not putting words into your mouth, but I'm guessing one of the people you most refer to is Putin in Russia. We've got um, John Gray coming on the show next month. He has a new book on this Hobbesian world that he sees coming into being. Why should Putin have a global vision? He runs a country. Why should he care about the global order? The global order is really just a euphemism for Western control of the world, isn't it? So why doesn't he just stop messing around? Because we're his enemies. What? But we're not invading Russia. Uh, so he has created this false narrative that Russia is a victim and that we are surrounding Russia. We're not. If Russia wasn't so reluctant to recognize the independence of countries like Georgia and Ukraine, they wouldn't be desperately wanting to join NATO because they wouldn't have that threat from Russia. It's precisely because Russia, um, <clears throat> under Putin, is unable to accept the concept that countries like Georgia and Ukraine are entitled to their own independence, that they feel they need to seek security. The other reason he feels that threat is that Ukraine and Georgia, albeit very imperfectly and with problems of corruption as well, are democracies and they are choosing a different path and they have held elections. And that model, if it is proved to be successful, is a great threat for Russia, is a great threat for Putin's model of leadership. But the West isn't attacking Russia. We haven't invaded Russia. In fact, after the end of the Cold War, we set up a council in NATO to collaborate with Russia. We tried to coordinate with Russia. There was a moment when we hoped that we could try and end the hostilities of the Cold War forever. Now, there will be those who argue that perhaps we assumed too naively and too linearly that now that the Cold War was over, we had sort of won it and that everyone would follow in our direction. And that's clearly not happened. Um, but we do not pose a threat to Russia. Nobody is bombing Russia. Alex, I'm the last person in the world to be defending Putin or, or his regime. I'm more interested in this idea of something being different in this new, what you and Jason and many others call this new disordered world. You note that Putin's paranoid about the West, but his paranoia is no different from the paranoia of Stalin or of the, the czars of the 18th and 19th century. W what's different about Putin? Well, I don't think that has to be anything different. I mean, that um, that is one of the things we need to understand, that, that there is a long historic and cultural attitude in Russia, um, and they are a proud people. And the 
collapse of the Cold War was perceived um, and is now actively portrayed by Putin as a great failure and the single biggest disaster that hit his country. So he's playing on that, but he's also playing on that narrative to shore up his own power. One of the things that is very striking is on Russian television, there are endless, endless clips over and over again, celebrating the heroism of Russian soldiers during World War II. It's in a naked appeal to Russian sense of historic greatness and national pride at a very fine and pivotal moment in their history. So I'm not saying there is anything different from what went before. And Stalin crushed his opponents to stay in power, and Putin crushes his opponents to stay in power. I happen to know um, Vladimir Karamurza, one of the opposition politicians, who's been sentenced to 25 years in jail in Russia for speaking out against the war in Ukraine. There are those who argue, Alex, and again, you know this a lot better than I do, that the global system is just a, a fairly thinly veiled attempt by the Western economy, neoliberal companies, all the rest of it to control the Russian economy, Russian society, and all other economies and societies. Is there any truth in that? No, I don't think so. And I think we have to be really careful to avoid false moral equivalence. The US led Western alliance is certainly not perfect. Nobody is denying that. Our own democracies are not perfect. But I can tell you as a diplomat for over 30 years that what I witnessed and what I observed in our own system was a certain adherence to ideals and values and an international rules-based order. And it's very disheartening for me to see recent Tory governments resile from that position um, and succumb to populism themselves. I regularly used to work on United Nations matters and issue instructions to our missions there. When the UK and its partners took action on international affairs, by and large, it was to protect civilian populations at risk. It was to protect weaker countries facing unprovoked aggression. Now, people will ask, ah, but what about Iraq? Or what about Kosovo? You didn't have a UN Security Council resolution. But when the West intervened in Kosovo, it was to protect a threatened population. That is not the case of countries like Russia on the Security Council and their proxies. So I just think it's a really dangerous trap to go down to imply that you're all as bad as each other, just like it's a really dangerous trap that is affecting all our democracies right now, that all politicians are useless and they're all as bad as each other. They're not. Some try to adhere to some moral codes and some don't. We're speaking with Alexandra Hall Hall, um, who is the co-host of a wonderful new podcast called Disorder. We've had her co-host uh, Jason Pack on the show a couple of times. Uh, Alexandra is a former diplomat. We're going to come to your diplomatic career later in the show, Alex. Um, you noted earlier that one other difference in the world in 2023 uh, is media, social media, technology. How has that 
change the world disorder, this growing, what at least seems to many people, including you and, and Jason, this growing disordered international realm? Well, I'm not an IT or a social media expert myself. I'm relatively new on the forum. But even I, who I like to think as a fairly professional, balanced person, my entire diplomatic training is about being able to make objective assessments. And even I, I can get on Twitter and see something and immediately feel very stirred up and angry about it and be tempted to repost it. Um, <laughs> Thank you for showing that tweet, um, the one that yeah, went viral. And for people who are just listening, I'm showing the pinned tweet from Alex uh, on her X page. Uh, and I'm quoting, I woke up this morning, and this is from uh, January 20, last year, 2022. I woke up this morning feeling strangely, strangely unsettled and realized that despite or perhaps because of 30 plus years in conventional government service, I'm now starting to question everything I thought I once knew about my country and institution. So what I think social media does is it um, allows misinformation and extreme views to be circulated far, far quicker and reach far, far more people. And we can see what's happening on other sides of the world. And actually coming back to the Israel-Palestine situation right now, the thing that I found most terrifying is trying to discover what's true and what's false. So last week when the stories about the beheaded babies came out, there were several days when it was impossible to know. And to be perfectly honest, I still don't 100% know um, what the truth of that story is. Though I might also add that babies being killed, their method of killing seems to me a secondary issue. But obviously, the people highlighting that they were beheaded were trying to bring home the depth of depravity of Hamas and rile up um, anger against Hamas. And those who were denying it were trying to pretend, no, no, they killed the babies, but they didn't behead them as if that makes it any more acceptable. So it's just a very, very toxic forum and misinformation can be spread far, far more quickly. And that's why we need curated media. I've been making this argument for many years. One of the best new curated media products is our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. It's put together by my friend Leon Weaseltier um, and Celeste Marcus, a couple of uh, the smartest and most uh, original journalists and writers around. I strongly suggest everyone subscribe. I'm going to run a short ad for them, um, Alex, and then we'll be back. And I want to talk more specifically about after the break about your career in diplomacy and Brexit. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back with Alex Hall Hall and Brexit in about 33 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking today with... Alexandra Hall Hall. I, I can't resist, Alex. I apologize for the dumb <laughs> joke. So good they named her twice. Uh, 
or oh, whole squared is a popular one too yeah well uh, it's my joke so good yeah. i mean it's not my joke i'm sure you've heard it a million times before but uh you are pretty good that's why you're on the disorder podcast and you were in the news you're always in the news but you were particularly in the news uh back in uh 2019 you were the so-called brexit i don't know what you were the, the brexit person in the uk embassy in washington dc and you quit back then in uh, december 2019 lots of headlines about that tell me what happened and perhaps before even explaining what happened briefly tell us about your career as a diplomat I will, but I'm going to link why I resigned over Brexit to what we were talking about just before the break about the lack of trust and the ability of social media to spread toxic and misleading information. One of the challenges we have is you suggested we need to curate the information, but who are the trusted sources? And we are in a world where we don't trust even the sort of traditional sources like the BBC or experts or university academics. And as a diplomat, what was very disheartening as the Brexit spokesperson was that I was being asked to tell lies. And that is absolutely the opposite of what we were trained to do as diplomats and is in the diplomatic code. And once civil servants are co-opted into spreading false and misleading information, you are eroding quite a strong pillar of our democratic systems. So my career is that I was for 30 plus years a British diplomat. I um, was motivated to join the Foreign Office after spending time in the West Bank and visiting Gaza and witnessing the situation of Palestinian refugees. And I really wanted to join the Foreign Office with the naive concept that I might be able to solve the Middle East peace process. I've served in... So that was back in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> exactly. I've served in Washington, Bogota, Delhi, as ambassador to Georgia. I had two years working embedded in the US system in the State Department and then in the Pentagon during the Iraq war. And I also served in the what is like the National Security Council, though it didn't exist then, but in the cabinet office, uh, European Secretariat advising first John Major's government and then Tony Blair's government on European Union policy. So I have had a very wide ranging and wonderful career um, until it all came crashing to a halt in 2019. Who told you to lie? Uh, the instructions that I was given under Boris Johnson on the messages. So what happens is when you're a diplomat, the Foreign Office or the the cabinet office send instructions to all diplomats around the world saying these are our current lines and messages on the Middle East conflict or the situation in Ukraine or in this case on Brexit and these are the messages we want you to be delivering and the problem with the messages that were coming out under Boris Johnson they were different from the kind of instructions we were getting when Theresa May was prime minister in that they were nakedly more political and involved lines critical of the opposition and critical of those 
who supported Remain and were holding the government to account for its approach on Brexit. So that was breaching the civil service code on political impartiality. And then they were very misleading in terms of the impact of a hard Brexit on business, for example, implying we would negotiate a free trade deal and there would be no friction between trade between the UK and the rest of the EU, which was, of course, not the case if you were leaving the single market and the customs union. And they were also misleading about the implications of a hard Brexit for the situation in Northern Ireland, implying well, of course, we're committed to the Good Friday Agreement and we agree there mustn't be a border on the border, on the island of Ireland, but with absolutely no explanation of where the border checks would take place. And so they were sort of willfully misleading. And I was the spokesperson to America, to our sort of oldest ally and to a country that helped sponsor the Uh, Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, and to a country that has huge business interests in the UK, and many of its investments were predicated on the attractiveness of the UK as a location from which to trade into the rest of the EU. So I was being asked to deliver lines that frankly were very patronising and insulting, because they understood the situation on Northern Ireland perfectly well, and they understand trade policy perfectly well. So it was a really, really difficult situation to be in. Was one of the reasons you quit is that you simply, you're a globalist and they're not, and they were asking you to lie about their own particular argument. Do you think you would have quit if, if, if the reverse was true? Or is there something about the Johnson... Brexit populist style movement that lends itself to lying? Well, there were other factors that I felt really uncomfortable about. The prorogation of Parliament was one, the attacks on um, judges in the UK was another, the sort of contempt shown towards the Scots and the, the Irish generally. So those were sort of wider things that were really uncomfortable. I think what was different about this, I've worked on previous policy issues where I may or may not have had a different view on what was the decision. The difference with Brexit was that this was something that was happening in our own country. It wasn't me advocating for a particular position on the situation in Argentina or the situation in Myanmar. This was trying to explain something that was going on in our own country. And this wasn't just misleading lines to put a positive spin on the British government to foreign countries. These were lines that were being delivered and were crafted for a domestic audience in the UK. So they were misleading to our own countrymen. So yes, there was something very, very different. It was a form of populism. It was a form of deceit that I had not previously encountered. But on Brexit per se, the irony is, is that I actually took the job actively because I thought, well, if we're going to leave the EU, it's not for me to allow my personal views on Brexit to colour my willingness to work for the government or not. I actually took the job with the genuine and in hindsight rather naive view that if we're going to leave the EU, 
I can actually work and draw on my EU knowledge and sort of help the UK make a good fist of it. I did not expect to be in this situation where I was having to defend the indefensible. So there was something very different. You've mentioned the P word a few times in this conversation, uh, Alex, populism, and clearly not your favorite word or movement. But people often talk about Brexit and Trump in the same sentence. People say, well, before Brexit and Trump, uh, blah, blah, and then it woke me up. But weren't both these, for better or worse, just manifestations of the popular will that people decided they didn't want to be in the EU or they rather like Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton? I mean, what's wrong with populism? It, uh, there's nothing wrong. In fact, that is what democracy is supposed to do, is to uh, reflect the will of the people and you adopt platforms and you deliver them. But, I mean, Brexit, so many of the arguments about Brexit were fundamentally lying. There is something different. And if we just say, well, all sides lie, like the Remain campaign and Project Fear was exaggerated. But I don't think that's the case. What we are seeing now is bearing out many of the concerns that were highlighted in Project Fear. Maybe not overnight, our economy didn't crash, but it is undeniably the case that we have lost opportunities. Our business climate is far harder. So, I mean, the whole host of things that Project Fear raised are turning out to be coming true in a slow and steadily accumulating way because we haven't even introduced all the post-Brexit measures. The government keeps postponing them because they know they're going to make life for businesses even harder. But the promises that the Brexiteers delivered haven't actually come true. We do not have 350 million more pounds a week for our national health service. We do not have our cake and eat it. We are not able to trade friction-free with the rest of Europe. So um, to sort of, it goes back to this thing, and this is the kind of thing that Russia exploits and the people who put out disinformation put out. If they could just sow enough confusion, well, everybody is lying to you. It sows this cynicism towards democracy and it sows this apathy and it disenchants people. And that is a very, very dangerous thing for our democracy. So I always push back when people say, well, all politicians are the same. It's not true. It really isn't true. Is there any it upside to Brexit? I mean, the, the Guardian, which is a left of centre, anti-Brexit newspaper, ran a piece today about uh, some analysis showing that U.S. net migration will start falling in pre-Brexit levels. Um, well, I mean, that's not that's not a benefit. That's saying it may get back to where it was before Brexit. I'm not sure that that is... Does anything really... I, mean, I go backwards and forwards to the UK. I'm sure you do as well. Maybe I go as a tourist, but it doesn't strike me as if the country has dramatically changed since Brexit. It's still pretty much the same thing. Well... It's an interesting point. It depends where you go and it depends where you live, I think. So when I go back to the UK, I go back as a expat or a migrant living in the US and I go back and I go to my favorite old pubs and I see my family and we live in the south of England and we're very lucky and most of my family are retired and they own their house. So and these are people who voted for Brexit, so they don't feel the negative impacts. 
But with my local pub, they cannot get the staff. They used to rely upon um, European students and young people coming to work as to run their bar, and they don't have the staff. So they have closed down the kitchen two days a week. It's just a small little chipping away erosion. And then I mean, we've all read the stories about the crops that are going unpicked in the fields because we no longer have the agricultural workers um, who can come in and out of the UK as freely as possible. They can apply for seasonal migrant workers, but that involves a lot of expense. And then my brother is married to a German woman. They have lived here for 35 years. My sister-in-law never applied for British citizenship because she doesn't think she needed it. After Brexit, a couple of times when she's tried to come back into the UK, she has been detained at customs to prove that she has lived here and prove that she had the right to enter the UK. Those are all sort of small, cumulative little stories. And then you look at the state of British public services, the hospitals that had a lot of foreign workers who staffed the nurses or social care homes that had a lot of people coming from um, some of the poorer parts of the EU. This was a wonderful opportunity for people to come here. They learned English. We had workers to do the jobs that British people did not want to do. All those industries are really struggling, hospitality. Then you have all the opportunities for young British people who used to go and do a season at a ski resort. And I really resent the idea that this was some, oh, well, that only affects sort of posh Southerners. That's absolutely patronizing and not true. Um, and then you've lost the study opportunities that we used to have across the rest of the EU. I have a nephew who is in the music it industry. He is a music producer. And where they used to get gigs traveling across Europe or American bands would always hire British backup sound musicians to run their concerts when they crunch across Europe. And now they will not hire them because British people can no longer travel uh, without visas or without special permits across the rest of the EU. So these are all cumulative, small, little sort of Brexit by a thousand cuts. Finally, um, Alex, what, what, what are the, the fixes for all this? Do we go back? We talked earlier about curated media. You, you seem to be troubled by the fact that nobody trusts their local journalist, their local diplomat, their local politician anymore. How do we reestablish that trust? We can't go back, can we? Well, I was I wrote an article recently about what do Ukraine, Nagorno-Karabakh and the latest situation in Israel have in common. And one of the things that I think they have in common is that Russia thought they could get away with attacking Ukraine because they assumed the West was too divided and distracted to respond effectively. And I think it's still an open question whether we can sustain our response. The Azeris saw an opportunity to reclaim back Nagorno-Karabakh because they saw Russia was distracted and Russia was Armenia's patron. And Hamas and Iran saw that Israel was internally divided over the controversial rule of Benjamin Netanyahu. So I think where we start is at home. We have to 
try to overcome this grotesque polarization and realize that we, ha I mean, I, I hate to sound sort of like the happy talk, um, but we need leaders who instead of playing to their most extreme base, recognize they need to reach out to the other side and that we are vulnerable when we are divided and that bad actors around the world are taking advantage of us now. So it starts at home and it starts with trying to find the right kind of leaders. Now in the UK and in the US, at the moment, our political systems seem to be rewarding the most extreme politicians and incentivizing people with the thickest skins um, to enter politics. We have to look at our current political structures and that is going to be hard because at the moment people feel they benefit from them. Um, but we are going to have to repair ourselves at home. And sadly, the sort of cataclysm of Israel and Palestine, whereas Ukraine, I would argue, was a moment of encouragement because generally there's bipartisan support for Ukraine. What we're seeing on Israel and Palestine is it's an immensely divisive issue. And actually, it's creating polarized views at home about what is the right response. It's such a polarizing issue. So I feel it's very dangerous. And I feel that was Hamas's objective all along and Iran behind it. It's nothing to do with helping the Palestinians. It was to draw Israel into a quagmire, to commit atrocities that were so bad that Israel would have... that it was impossible for Israel not to respond. Israel will be sucked into this. There will be egregious sights now, as we're already seeing, of Palestinian suffering. It will inflame world opinion. And every country that has a significant Jewish or Muslim population will be facing those tensions now. So unfortunately, this was a very cynical uh, incident and it is playing out in the most dangerous of ways. We have to resist um, allowing our passions to become inflamed. We are going to have to do the building back at home. It's a horrible situation. I wish I could sound more cheerful.